This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host physician assistant, Lisa DeAndre Linnell. The healthcare reimbursement landscape is constantly changing. With new federal Medicare programs and new billing and coding terminology, the time has come for every physician assistant to increase their knowledge about medical billing and reimbursement. You're listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, your host, and with me today is Michael Poe, Vice President of Health Systems and Reimbursement Policy for the American Academy of Physician Assistants. He's here today to discuss medical billing and reimbursement for physician assistants. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Partners in Practice. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me on. Michael, every practice is concerned about reimbursement for services. Could you provide us with some insight as to the current reimbursement picture for physician assistants? Sure, I'm happy to. Well, I think PAs face similar problems as do physicians in terms of the complex nature of reimbursement and coverage for their services. There are policies that are payer by payer. There are some that are confusing. And frankly, trying to get good information out of the payer becomes a real challenge. I think that every payer in the marketplace has different sets of rules and regulations that are in place, and it becomes very challenging for PAs and practices to try to figure out how to make those rules work to their advantage. I think it's clear that PAs have increased their stature in the sense that almost every payer in the marketplace will cover their services. However, it is also true that there are some challenges that PAs face in terms of certain payers trying to reduce the level of services PAs can provide either because they don't understand the training and education that PAs have or because they're trying to hold down costs within their healthcare system. Another issue is that of discounting for services provided by PAs. I'd like to talk about that because recently one of the larger payers in the country, Aetna, announced that it would reimburse PAs at 85% of the physician fee schedule. And this isn't the first time that PAs have seen this. So do you think that this is a trend that's likely to continue? Well, yeah, it was certainly a shock to us, and uh, we were disappointed at Aetna's policy. Now, it is important to understand that Aetna has included the ability for PAs to gain 100% reimbursement by using billing mechanisms similar to Medicare, such as Incident 2 and Shared Visit. But the fact is, they did reduce by 15% the amount they were paying for physician assistance and their services. We're concerned about that. It is not a trend at this point, but we clearly see that there are some payers out in the marketplace who want to emulate Medicare's policy and have put that discount into play. So I understand that they're working off the Medicare model, and that's fine. But as a PA working in private practice, I tried to do the right thing. I called my Aetna rep, and I said, well, how do we do this similar type of incident to billing with your company? And no one could answer that question for me. So how do you know how you're supposed to bill? Well, it's extremely frustrating because payers like Aetna and United Healthcare and others have strict guidelines in terms of what they want from physician assistance in the billing process yet trying to get quality information from any of these payers is quite a challenge. We have people who do that full-time within the AAPA, and we know just how difficult it can be. The fact is, some of the folks who work in the claims department of these major payers don't have a clear understanding of what they're promulgating in terms of rules and regulations. That's why the Academy spends a great deal of time and keeps a national database on virtually every payer in the country. And every 6 to 12 months, we do a full review of these payers to make sure that we understand what their policies really entail and we can pass that information back to practicing PAs. In addition, we've uh, had some conversations with Aetna, and we've expressed the frustration that most PAs feel when a payer such as this puts in place a discount because PAs across this country know that they don't provide 85% of the care to the patient, so therefore why should their services be discounted? 
And what was the outcome of the conversation that the AAPA had with Aetna? Well, we had a conversation with one of the chief medical officers, Dr. Cross, within Aetna, and also had on the line their head of national provider contracting. And we talked about some of these issues and complained a lot about the fact that the communication process was really quite poor. Unlike being able to deal with Medicare or Medicaid because they're government agencies, private payers are private corporations and therefore don't have to reach out to other healthcare professionals to include them in the decision-making process. And that was the crux of what our concerns were. One of the outcomes that came out of the meeting was the fact that they did assign a representative from Aetna to be our liaison so that in the future we can have ongoing conversations that, number one, talks about how we can better educate medical directors and others within private payers such as Aetna, and also to get a heads up on some of the policies that are coming down the pipe so we can have some input in the process. Well, PAs are are very dependent on the AAPA to help us in these larger issues, but the AAPA has some strict legal limitations with discussing payment or reimbursement issues with private payers. Could you explain why this is? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, there are certain rules out there, such as antitrust provisions, which don't allow a large national organization, such as the AAPA, to talk specifically about pricing or payment structures for an entire class of healthcare professionals. Any individual practice or any individual PA and physician team can negotiate with Aetna as to what they will accept in terms of payment. However, a PA state or national organization would be in specific violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act if they were to engage in a similar conversation. We can talk generically about the process. We can use certain terms, but we can't negotiate on price and payment specifically on behalf of PAs. So then how can PAs protect themselves when payers look to discount or limit the range of services that they deliver to patients? Well, I think one of the important things that PAs can do, and that includes their physician and the practice manager, is to better negotiate when they're signing contracts with payers such as Aetna. I mean, every year you tend to have to re-sign a managed care contract or a payer contract. When that comes along and you're dealing with a representative from the payer, be specific about including language that covers PAs within the practice and deals with the fee schedule that's going to be paid. Now, a lot of practices believe that once they get a contract from a large payer such as Aetna, they can't change, they can't negotiate. It is what it is, and that's not always the case. Sometimes there is flexibility and latitude in terms of what that contract says, and we believe that there ought to be specific language in every contract that talks about coverage of services provided by PAs. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Michael Poe, Vice President of Health Systems and Reimbursement Policy for the American Academy of Physician Assistants. And we're discussing medical billing and reimbursement for physician assistants. So, Michael, I'd like to close that in a conversation with just one more question. I finally worked my way up the Aetna chain, and I was finally told that Aetna doesn't credential PAs, only nurse practitioners. And they would not list us as a provider, but they would be happy to add us to their network. Is there a benefit for joining the Aetna network, and should PAs do it? Well, it depends. As part of Aetna's new policy that went in place in most parts of the country on June 1st, they have said that they want to credential all PAs within their system. They are encouraging PAs to apply, and as part of that credentialing, they will be listed on the member directory, which means that any patient who accesses Aetna's healthcare system will be able to see PAs specifically listed along with physicians in terms of those professionals that they can access for their healthcare. For most people, it's going to be a good thing because there are certain benefits in being credentialed, not just in terms of recognition, but also in terms of payment policy and how quickly payment is made. There are some PAs who may not be better served with the credentialing process because by signing on 
as part of the credentialing process, you agree to accept Aetna's payment policy and their rate of payment. If you are out of network, that is, you choose not to accept to be included in their network, you typically have access to a higher level of payment. So for those who are perhaps in surgery, working as independent contractors, they may not benefit from this whole policy. So it really depends on what practice situation you're in and some other administrative issues that are involved. Are there areas of medicine in which private payers put up unique reimbursement barriers for PA practice? I think there are. Clearly, every healthcare professional is being challenged in different ways lately in terms of what they do. I think uh, procedures are being looked at a little bit more strictly these days. But one of the areas that is particularly difficult for physician assistants is that of mental and behavioral health. Because oftentimes, private payers like Aetna will carve out or give away the mental and behavioral health business to a specialty company. And these specialty companies often want a certain degree or advanced degree in a mental health specialty, such as psychology or pastoral counseling or social work. PAs typically don't have those advanced degrees, despite the fact that they may be very well trained in mental and behavioral health areas. So that oftentimes the behavioral health companies will decide not to include PAs in their network and therefore deny their services. And that's particularly difficult because there is an extreme shortage of mental health professionals in the country today. And as you may know, a couple of years ago, we got the Mental Health Parity Bill passed, which means that there is going to be a fair payment system for mental and behavioral health services, which we didn't have before, which suggests to me that more and more patients will be accessing the system for these kinds of services. So the strain on the availability and the access to these healthcare professionals will be even greater. So where can PAs get assistance with negotiating these contracts, understanding whether or not they should become part of the network of Aetna, how to deal with the other private payers, and inside of their practice dealing with the administrators? Where are the resources to learn how to do all this? Well, I think the APA website has a great many resources that PAs ought to be taking advantage of, and they ought to be sharing this information with their supervising physician and practice managers. We've got a great deal of information in terms of issue briefs on these kinds of issues, on how to negotiate, whether it's a contract for the PA personally, whether it's a contract that the practice signs with a major payer. We have detailed information on what PAs in their practice can ask for in terms of the payer profiles. So I think they really need to go to the AAPA website, click on reimbursement, and they will have a great deal of information on most of these issues that we've talked about today. Okay, let's move on to health care reform. Even though we're in the very early stages of implementation, are there provisions in the reform language that are important to PAs? I think there are. And one of the good things about the healthcare reform initiative is that many of the programs that are made available to physicians have also been made available to PAs. And that is, PAs have a similar stature or status that is equal to physicians. For example, the healthcare reform bill contains a provision that gives a 10% additional bonus payment to those who work in primary care and PAs have access to that additional payment. So there are a number of things that are good, a number of programs that seek to provide additional preventive services to patients without deductibles, without co-pays, and PAs are integral providers in that service, and they're eligible from the Medicare program to provide the full range of both preventive and traditional services to Medicare beneficiaries. Recently, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the NCQA, expanded eligibility to include physician assistance. What does that mean for PAs and how do they get involved? Well, the NCQA as an organization will certify healthcare professionals as having specific and unique quality training in certain areas, whether it's diabetic management or other kinds of things, heart disease, for example. And for a number of years, they did not allow PAs to qualify for that status. It was only physicians. 
And in the last couple of months, they've opened up a number of those programs to make PAs eligible and to make them able to receive that same high certification of excellence. And there's also been a lot of talk about the patient-centered medical home. Could you provide an overview of what this new model of care looks like and how PAs play a role? Well, the patient-centered medical home is one of the new programs that most people think will revolutionize a lot of the way that we provide health care in this country. And it's the concept of trying to make care comprehensive, to have one entity, one practice, one team of health care providers be the ones who manage, monitor, and coordinate the entire range of care for a patient. As you know, in this country, we have care that is very sporadic. A patient can go to any one of three or four or five different health care providers of different specialties and different areas of medicine, and if there's no one to coordinate that total care, oftentimes things are missed or dropped through the system. You might have some awkward interactions between pharmaceuticals because one health care professional isn't talking to or doesn't know about another one. So the medical home concept will seek at its basis to provide a small extra stipend, perhaps a per-member, per-month payment, to a healthcare team and have that team really be the ones that manage on a comprehensive basis the total range of care for that particular patient. And we're very pleased to see that the federal language that passed in terms of healthcare reform puts PAs at the forefront of being those who can manage or direct those healthcare teams. So, Michael, how does the future look for physician assistants with reimbursement and clinical practice? Well, I think the demand for PAs is going to do nothing but increase. We're finding that most organizations, most large practices, most hospitals understand better than ever how efficiently PAs can make their practice and how patient-friendly PAs can be in terms of patient satisfaction numbers and quality of care. That bodes well for the profession. I also think we're going to see some other policy things take place, such as an additional reduction in the number of hours that residents can work, which means even a greater need for PAs. So I think that their demand side is going to be quite high It's going to be up to us to make sure that we provide the supply increase that's going to be necessary to meet the needs. I think reimbursement is going to take care of itself rather well because I think we're going to see a shift from the payment for an individual service into more of a global payment system, whereby we start paying for episodes of care. We start giving lump sums of payment to manage a patient's care over a continuum or a period of time. So that's going to be up to the healthcare organizations to determine internally how it spreads its resources and reimbursement dollars but I think we're going to see a little bit less of the traditional fee-for-service model. Well, we thank you for helping us better understand this very complicated system, Michael. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Lisa. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.